hi and good afternoon, good morning, good evening, everybody from whichever parts of the world you're joining us in. Uh, thank you so much for joining us uh, today in our Berkman Klein event on foresight uh, and decolonial humanitarian tech ethics. Um, it is fantastic to have you join us. Um, and the question I wanted to pose to, to everybody and, and why we're here today uh, is really to interrogate how do we not lock people into future harm, future indebtedness or future inequity. And before we start, I want to acknowledge that I am currently doing this event on the ancestral Lenape homelands, and I recognize the longstanding significance of these lands for Lenape nations past and present, as well as future generations. I want to also acknowledge the world that will exist beyond our lifetimes and the people, animals, and nature that will thrive in it. I also recognize that the very act and nature of online events and technology access is denied to so many people around the world. And there are many people out there that find themselves on the brunt receiving end of these technologies that don't get to have a say in how they are designed. So thank you for joining us today as we try and interrogate a more just and equitable digital future for us all. My name is Arathi Krishnan. Uh, I'm a fellow at the Berkman Client Center and my research that I've been working on um, has been focused very closely on this topic. I've been in the humanitarian sector for almost 20 years, um, and I've been working on humanitarian digital governance um, through, through my work with the Berkman Klein Center. I've chosen this topic, as I've often argued, that the humanitarian aid system perpetuates hierarchical, patriarchal, hegemonic views of what development and progress look like, ignoring other worldviews and often the underlying systemic and structural pillars of inequity and bias. And as the humanitarian aid system increasingly intersects with technology systems that are often developed in the context of Western capitalism and in small pockets of privileged power, I have not been the only one that has raised, has raised concerns on the implications of the collision of these two systems, and importantly, what that means um, on those that are minoritized in the global south. So how then do we use or do we design digital governance systems that speak to these complex intertwined issues? And instead of merely looking at digital governance in terms of control, could we design different approaches to liberate ourselves, to liberate our digital futures, so that it is a space of safety, of humanity for those of, that we are meant to support? And are these approaches in which we can design new forms of digital humanism? So today I'm really thrilled to be able to explore two elements of that with our panelists and with all of you here today. And this is around how we integrate both foresight the consideration of future impacts and future harm, as well as decoloniality into humanitarian digital governance systems. And I am thrilled to announce um, and thrilled to introduce our panelists for today that will help uh, think through some of these. Um, so Anasuya, Sabelo, uh, Malambi, and Andrew, Andrew Zoli uh, are joining us today. I'm going to invite them to turn their cameras on so I can do their introductions. 
So Adisa Yusin Gupta um, is the co-director of Who's Knowledge, an organization that works on reimagining the internet to be for all people. She has led initiatives in India and the USA, across the global south and internationally for over 20 years to amplify marginalized voices in both virtual and physical worlds. Thank you, Anasuya, for joining us. Uh, Sabelo Malambi uh, is the founder of Bantukrasi, a public interest organization that focuses on Ubuntu ethics and technology. He's a Technology and Human Rights Fellow at the Carr Center for Human Rights Policy and a Fellow at the Berkman Klein Center as well. Uh, Sabello's work is at the intersection of human rights, ethics, culture, and technology and emphasizes Global South perspectives in AI policy. Welcome, Sabello. Uh, and finally, we're joined by Andrew Zoli, who oversees the Sustainable Development, Humanitarian, and Human Rights Impacts Portfolio at Planet Labs. Um, which deploys the largest uh, constellation of Earth observing satellites in history. Uh, together, planets, satellite image, planets, satellites image the entire surface of the Earth daily. Andrew also chairs uh, Planet's internal AI and data ethics program, and he serves on the global board of directors of Human Rights Watch. Welcome, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, so we have an hour today and we have um, very uh, you know, deep questions to interrogate, but I might open up really quickly uh, to Anasuya, Andrew and Sabello, just for any opening remarks that you want to make before I dive into the questions. Uh, and perhaps uh, Andrew, we might start with you since your mic is unmuted. Oh, <laughs> well, before we get started, I, I just wanna say, I have taken over the course of my, my entire career enormous um, value and inspiration from the work of, of the Berkman Klein Center. And, and I have to say it is incredibly exciting that you, Arathy, are leading this from there, that, that, that this conversation is happening is uh, another on a long list of, of data points where really you know, important conversations uh, are happening. Uh, for, for those of you who are listening, I'll just say a word or two, a quick introduction and, and, and sort of framing for, for this. I oversee the global humanitarian and human rights and, and sustainable development applications of a technology which was birthed, you know, if we think about the kind of tacit, conceptually biased frames of development in which we have created kind of unipolar models uh, where we have hyper-developed, and I put this all in enormous air quotes, uh, 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 technical societies at one end and, and then a whole array of communities on the other. Um, a, 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 a poll that is, of course, one of the most important things that has to, this concept needs to go away, needs to die. But I, I come, from a place where, from at the very edges of that Western elite, highly financed uh, world where we are building technologies that have extraordinary global potential and, and are producing terabytes of data a day about the world. And I think of data as unrefined social power. And, you know, if you're producing large amounts of data, you're producing large amounts of tacit social power. And the question then is, what are the cultural frames? What are the conceptual frames? What are the respectful relationships? What are the 
kinds of partnerships and structures in which the full liberation potential of that data uh, can be made fully manifest. And it certainly can't be made fully manifest if it's just a bunch of Silicon Valley types at one end making decisions about it. So we are actively working on how we think about creating those kinds of government governance structures, both the kind of explicit ones and the kind of tacit new, new tacit norms around them. Um, we'll have, um, well, I'm sure we'll explore this much more in the conversation to come, but, but the, the, uh, the challenges in doing that um, in, in, in it are not just about distributing assets, but they're also about conceiving of all of the social relationships, power relationships, the kind of imbalances that exist and actively working to our best ability to overcome them. We're not perfect in that as anyone is, but, but I'm very excited to, to hear uh, what people have to, to say about what we're doing and, and, uh, and to reflect on it with you. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Andrew. Uh, Anasuya, I might I might uh, open up to you if there's any quick um, introduction comments you want to make, and then I'll go to Sabelo. Um, just to say that um, I'm I'm very conscious of the fact that I'm coming into this conversation with my head and my heart in India, um, and also in other parts of the global south, whose knowledge is a feminist collective. Um, co-led um, with companeras from Brazil, from Uruguay, um, from, um, from uh, different parts of the world, uh, from Ghana, um, and all of us are at this moment um, very much on the fragile end of uh, our own emotional beings, but even more so um, bearing witness to um, yes, if to put it as one might put it, uh, one of the greatest humanitarian crises of our times. That, as with many humanitarian crises, is um, humanly engineered um, in ways that make it worse. So I will no doubt bring back very embodied experiences around this as we talk, but um, it is important, I think, for me to say that for us at whose knowledge, um, I, I love that Andrew said, you know, air quotes around development. My background is in development studies and throughout my career, one of the things I've done is put scare quotes around development, um, recognizing that um, the vision that we have for the world is around justice. And uh, justice for us means centering those who have been marginalized by structures and power of power and privilege uh, throughout history and ongoing. And for us, as you said, Arthi, they are the minoritized majority of the world. I'll stop there and um, come back to you as we talk more. Thank you, Anasuya. And I also just want to acknowledge that, particularly with everything happening in India right now, this is a difficult time uh, for, for a lot of our Indian brothers and sisters in diaspora um, and for yourself. Um, and we're very grateful for the graciousness of your time and wisdom today. Uh, Sabelo, thank you so much for joining. Uh, over to you if there's any opening comments you want to make before I jump into questions. 
Thank you so much, um, Arati. It's such a pleasure to be here with you all and uh, just to see some familiar faces and to be uh, back at my intellectual home, the Berkman Klein Center. Um, I also wanted to give a special shout out to Stanford, um, Stanford's Digital Civil Society Lab, where I'm also doing a, a fellowship at this moment as well. And um, I'm thankful to the community there as well. Um, I just wanna share some uh, uh, initial thoughts. And of course we can delve into this much, much, much more. Um, when speaking about human rights, I, I like to think and to, to ask myself, has the human part been answered? You know, what makes us human? And what are the social, economic, and political structures that are necessary to make us feel human, to make us feel protected? And if we look at the world as it is today, the ongoing systematic injustices, racial injustice, uh, 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 the neo-colonization that Kwame Nkrumah talked about back in 1966, has European, or maybe I can say Western humanism, been able to recognize the humanity of the non-European, right? We're living decades after these initial frameworks of human rights. Have we seen the benefit? Have we seen the, the, uh, the, uh, the preservation of the dignity of those, especially those who have been minoritized, yet they make up the majority of the world? Yeah. And I think the answer is, pretty self-explanatory. Self um, uh, this has not quite been the case. And, and maybe we need to start thinking about what are extensions or additions to the human rights frameworks that can guarantee those things to protect those who have been so left out, those whose humanity is still not being recognized, right? What good are human rights frameworks if they prevent you from recognizing the humanity of others? I think that demonstrates a fundamental flaw in how you know, we have come to understand these human rights uh, frameworks. Although there is a place for them, <laughs> I'm not saying we just throw away the baby with the bathwater, but I think there's a fundamental flaw there. And, and of course, if we look at history, we can see that you know, Europeans have always gathered together to make doctrines and frameworks that are veiled as human rights or veiled as progressive only to push forward their own economic interest. Um, it, maybe I can go on, but it's even troubling that some of the human rights organizations in the African continent have been tied to sort of US expansion, whether it's through sponsorship with, um, dare I say, the CIA or you know, other um, 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 parties, even the labor unions in the United States, like the AFL-CIO working with the CIA to destabilize labor movements across the global south. So it's a really, I think it's an area that needs to be better explored. And so um, I'm, I'm glad to be here to, uh, to, to try to, you know, uh, think more about those issues and to, um, and to work on sharing um, sort of uh, um, uh, uh, an African conception um, and broadly speaking, when I say African, because it's such a diverse continent, but to try to bring uh, uh, differing views that are shaped by the the, the anti-colonial influences of the African continent, the, the, the current decolonial scholars who are talking about these issues. So thank you all. And uh, it's just a pleasure to be with you. Thank you, Sabello. That's the, the comment that you just made, which has been echoed by Andrew and Anasuya. Do we recognize the humanity of others? 
in, in the technology futures we create. And, you know, where I sit, I, I don't think, I don't see that we necessarily do. It's a, we use these terms beneficiaries um, as if people are passively waiting for a handout for whatever harm or ideas of progress that, that we want to hand out to them as if we are uh, benevolent, so to speak. Uh, and so, yeah, if I might, I might want to start with you. You and I had a conversation uh, while ago, where we we started to sort of edge around, you know, decolonizing, de decolonization, decoloniality, etc. The differences. You do a lot of work in thinking, in, as well as in feminist approaches to this. But um, what does decolonizing technology, and particularly if you can speak to maybe decolonizing humanitarian technology, what does that mean and look like to you? What what what? How, how would you? How do you understand that? Um. Thanks, Arthi. Um. Yeah, uh, I'm trying to to answer a complex question that would take us that takes us a lifetime to answer. I think um, for us at whose knowledge and in my embodied experience uh, in the different uh, worlds that I have been in, I think about decolonization firstly as really the true and deep recognition of the fact that there have been historical structures of power and privilege that have not just governed the resources that have been extracted from different regions and territories, but have governed the ways that people think and act and are seen and perceived. As Sabello said, colonization has been a process in which our very humanity has been questioned. And let's, let's be clear, colonization uh, was essentially a process from the global north, from Europe at the time, in which race was constructed and thereby racism began because it was seen as a rationale for exploitation and extraction of resources from the global south, from Africa, from uh, Asia, from Latin America and the Caribbean islands and the Pacific islands. It's important to recognize that that structure then leads to capitalism. And then that capital uh, that leads to a digital uh, capital which then not just embodies and reflects the same structural inequities of history, but exacerbates them in some ways, particularly because we imagine digital uh, technologies to be more emancipatory and liberatory. We assume an emancipation and liberation because they are seen as being global, because they are seen as being quick, because they are seen as having reach and influence that are different from other global infrastructures, which is not true. There is a speed and a reach that is different, but the same things were said about the telegraph or the telephone or the television that we are saying in the 2000s about the internet. So for us, in terms of decolonization and a feminist decolonized, um, recognition of ourselves and our lives and our futures, we have to start with a critical understanding of power. Who holds it? Who doesn't hold it? Who is seen 
who is not seen, who is deliberately unseen, invisibilized, undermined, or exploited. And that for us is the ongoing process of a dynamic uncovering of power and of colonization. Um, and it is dynamic because our positionalities are not static. I may be a brown woman who is often the only brown woman in a tech conversation. At the same time, if I'm in a conversation with Indians, I am so-called upper caste. I am, again, I will put scare quotes around that. I am Savarna, I have caste privilege. Um, and that matters in a, a context in which the caste system continues to be, I think, the deepest social structure of oppression that its own inhabitants, its own oppressors have refused to identify and reflect upon. So power is positional, it is dynamic, and unpacking that power and unpacking its historicity, I think is deeply critical to the ways in which to understand feminist decolonized presence, as well as possible futures. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Anasuya. Um, I know, or, you know, I, I recall so many conversations where we talk about, um, we, we often talk about, you know, equity and inclusion, um, and we don't talk enough about class, and we don't talk enough particularly about caste uh, and tribes and how that plays out in our positionality of power, the decisions that we make and how it influences how we think about the world. Uh, Andrew, I'm gonna come to you to maybe respond to that because I know this is a topic and you talk a lot about uh, how technology um, uh, infuses capitalist modes of power. Um, so I just wanna come to you to maybe yeah, respond to that and then, and then Sabelo uh, as well. Well, I think Anasuya used the most important term, which is, the, I think, the starting point of, of, of all of this, which is about power, power and position. And I, I think about, um, you know, the, the, the reified and outdated concept, which we referenced with air quotes and scare quotes at the beginning of this discussion about the, the, the premise that, you know, we have this um, developmental framework and we have uh, and I'm, I'm going to speak candidly and and um, if if imprecisely so please presume good intent right but we we position in this unipolar world a world in which at one end we have uh, poor uh, brown uh, place-based traditional and then all, all of the scare quotes just assume they run down the list. Um, uh, societies at one end, you know, uh, uh, agroeconomical, and at the other end, we have, you know, uh, uh, developed, uh, technical, urban, mobile, uh, white uh, structures at the other end. And then what's fast, you know, so, so then what we do is we assume that there's one dimension that moves everyone along, that there's, there's an intrinsic then burden of responsibility to move people from here to there, if you're standing here. And among the countless reasons why this is a, you know, a pile of hot garbage as a, as a concept, not only does it, you know, it does all this othering from the point of view of the developed end, right? It creates um, and reifies power imbalances, often in the name of development, I have to control you to move you, which is absurd. 
And often the technologies that we're talking about are used as the instruments of control to, to move people purportedly across some spectrum without recognizing the enormous plurality of landing points, destinations, and waypoints along the way, and that the, all of this, all of these societies, including the ones over here, live in a period, a place of greater dynamic disequilibrium, healthy disequilibrium, but but also, you know, with the rights to self determination. And so, one and among the many problems here, I'll just point out is a problem for the people who live over here on the developed side, which is that you know if you live within a, a two kilometers of a Walmart and you have two cars and a big house and you know, you've checked all the boxes, apparently history is done with you. There's like no imaginary for where these people need to go. And of course, none of this is sustainable. So the, the whole system, the whole edifice is, needs change. So one of the things that, there, there are a few points where we, I think we need to go in that, that represent potential places where we can illuminate the soft underbelly and eviscerate these ideas. So one of them is, is that we have to uh, fundamentally attack the idea that these technologies are neutral. Their presumed neutrality is an instrument that hides the agenda that defines them. I, I strongly disbelieve the idea that there are, uh, that any technology is neutral. Technologies are products of the agendas. They, they create affordances around who can use them, who can access them, what's made easy and what's not made easy, all of those represent crystallized ethical principles and power relationships and need to, we need to kind of go at them. Um, then I think there's a, there's a process, and I, I say this from someone who lives over here and is trying to think about how to take some of the very powerful tools and rethink how we all use them, access them, invent them, redesign them, rethink them. So one of the principles that I think is really critical, one of the places where we start is with this sense of subsidiarity. This is, I'm, it's an old Catholic social teaching idea to put the tools as close to the context of use as, it, and, and no further away, right? So to stop this idea that the implicit idea of distribution of these tools, we need to put the manufacture of them in the right places. I think a second one, and this is one where we've really focused, our work is around the creation of digital public goods. D that is to say the creation of, of tools that can belong to wide publics. And, and we spend a lot of our time building them, but then also repositioning who owns them so that they don't come from a Silicon Valley firm, but they live in structures that have better governance, more inclusive governance. And I don't mean inclusive in the Western regime, I mean inclusive of all of the publics that, that might have interest in them. So we've, for instance, taken, we have a huge program where we're monitoring all of this uh, deforestation around the tropics. And, but it's not data that comes from us. It's passed through institutions that have different governance regimes. And so then I think a third part is to really carefully and aggressively attend to the ecosystems of participation, the architectures of participation and design them uh, in a different way. And then fundamentally, the other thing we have to do is we have to build new networks of trust that all of the othering and th this, this idea of some continuity in these networks of distribution, they, they hide the fact that we're not actually talking to each other all that often. You know, often these organizations that wanna do good in the world in a humanitarian context, they land 
the UFO in the front yard and they walk out and say, we have the answer, right? And then as soon as they've decided that the context is done, they walk back into the UFO and they fly off and those systems become extractive. So we have to build networks of, weave networks of mutuality and solidarity and trust. And that is a collective exercise. Anyway, I'll stop there. But th those are things we're thinking about and how we crystallize those into ethical principles that actually drive our work uh, and inform our work in a significant way. That's that we're kind of in the, the gritty work of doing that right now. Thank you so much, Andrew. And I think, um, you know, there's, we are driven by the philosophies and ideologies of, of just and equity and, and, and liberation. Um, and one of the things I'm gritty and in the grittiness of grappling is how do we, how do we convert that the philosophy and ideology and the good intent into what actually translates and will shift systems. What are the policy interventions? What, how do we actually shift different forms of governance systems? So I wanna come back to this, I, what the point that you said, which was inclusive governance, uh, which I think is interesting because in many parts in the communities I come from, governance is, 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 is understood very differently and, and the weight lit, uh, put into community is, is a lot more than, than weight put into control. And I want to just shift to Sabelo here because um, I'd love to hear Sabelo's, uh, uh, I guess, reflections on what Anasuya and Andrew were saying, but also I'd love to hear, um, Sabelo, you've done a lot of work in bringing in different types of thinking, ideology, and philosophies, particularly around the Ubuntu approach in terms of how we think about ethics and whose ethics and for what purpose and why, um, and particularly in the human rights context. Um, and so I would love to uh, yeah, hand over to you to, to hear some of your thoughts and reflections here. Thank you so much. Um, I, I wanted to sort of uh, kind of carry on from uh, uh, Andrew's reflections. Um, in particular, the concept about the developed world uh, seeing itself in a sort of final state of development or even achievement such that they don't need sort of uh, other human rights frameworks to extend their thinking, to extend how they recognize other humans. Um, I think I think of a quote by the, the South African uh, poet who was also um, a teacher at UCLA, Mazisi um, Gunene. Uh, he, he writes and he says that uh, technological development does not necessarily make us more ethical or more morally inclined or neutral in how we approach the world. Um, the institutions that we have here in the in the developed world, they still exclude racialized communities. Um, it sort of makes you wonder what is developed about all of this, right? You know, is, is science, is technology the mark of, of um, human achievement? And so, and I think the danger with that word, the developed world, is that it leads to this paternalism in the global south. Let's go show them how to be humans because they've never had human rights systems in their parts of the world when in fact we know that some of the earliest frameworks of human rights were developed in the african continent um, and, in, and in other parts of the world as well so it's this idea I, that i think is so troubling of west of you know western exceptionalism that we can sort of parent others from the manifest destiny before that i mean the history has just always always um um uh, uh always been there of that paternalism now, the, the problem that I encountered a few years ago when I began to, when I left the tech industry to sort of 
think more about why are we building the tools we're building? What problems are we solving? Who's benefiting from building those problems, uh, from uh, solving the solutions and who's framing the problems in the first place that have to be solved. Um, uh, and so this of course took me to the Berkman Klein Center. And, and while I was there, I began to wonder, you know, we're talking about ethics and AI, but it almost seemed as if we all assumed that we're talking about Western ethical systems, Western philosophy as the foundation. And, 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 and I, I just saw sort of like a, a type of discrepancy there in that some of the ideas which were developed by these early European US philosophers were the ones used to justify slavery, justify colonialism, justify imperialism. And so now we're going to turn to those ideas to try to liberate us from the effects of those philosophies in the very first place, right? Can we not find other systems that are designed around the aims we're aiming for? Can we find other ethical systems that are designed around a, a, a sort of a more encompassing definition of what it means to be a human being? And so this led me to um, uh, naturally to the Ubuntu framework. And I, I admit I was biased because I grew up with the Ubuntu framework. My, um, I'm from the, the Nguni people where Ubuntu means to be human. And so it's a philosophy that I was always familiar with. So I, I began to sort of then, you know, explore, well, what would a more, um, a widened approach to, um, to personhood actually mean for the development of um, um, better principles and better practices around protecting people when it comes to technology. And I think the difference is quite vast. Um, you know, one of the major critiques that I've always had with um, some of the uh, ethical frameworks we use for technology or just um, even the conversations around human rights in the Western concepts, I, I've, it's always surprised me that they fail to talk about reparations or to talk about restoration, restorative justice. How do you just overlook the past and then say, well, now let's do better when you have the means to address the past. So to fail to have restorations or reparations in these major frameworks, to me, it's like they're dead on arrival. You cannot say we'll do better without admitting guilt or, or, or trying to fix what happened and trying to address what happened. And we find that when we go to other parts of the world, restoration is at the center of the ethical systems, um, uh, uh, restoring others, um, reparations, even when you're not the oppressor to still give reparations or restoration to others, like what we've seen uh, famously in the case of South Africa, um, although it's still an ongoing process, but to give that restoration to your own oppressor as well. And so I think that disables um, or actually undermines sort of, um, uh, you know, some of these solutions uh, that we can propose to try to address the negative effects of technology or even the systems around um, uh, um, around creating technology. So um, my, my small contribution or, or sort of the efforts that I've been trying to make is to then work with others to try to suggest that perhaps we can find better ways to ensure this protection that we're talking about. If we're able to sort of um, explore what do the other conceptions of uh, human rights, of being human, what do they contain that we can use, especially here in the so-called developed world, which has not developed its own ethical maturity. So, you know, what can we do even in these parts of the world to then better protect those whom we've racialized within the United States, within Europe, 
and those who we still exclude even within the uh, um, uh, within the global south and I, and I think once we do that then we can start to have sort of this more systematic change um, but not just uh, only within the tech companies the tech culture the, the venture funding but even perhaps we can start to have um, um, even uh, more societal change that is designed on um, truly acknowledging and truly accepting the dignity, the human dignity of, um, of others. So Bill, <laughs> I, 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 my mind is racing. And I think, you know, often, yeah, you're right, because we don't talk about reparations. And, you know, in the humanitarian system, particularly over the last year, there has been so much conversation around the decolonizing of the humanitarian system, the uh, the reform of the humanitarian system. But my argument, you know, the thing that I've always worked through or tried to understand or unpack is, we still assume the centrality of our role in whatever reimagination we mean. And none of that, none of our efforts certainly think about how do we do any kind of reparations, any kind of giving back, because giving back assumes that there is control we must let go of. I'm very conscious of time. This is, I'm sure, you know, we could all go for much, much longer. We want to give some time to, to our audience. And there's some, there's some um, cute questions already in the panels. But I want to come back around uh, uh, questions around, you know, blending in. I want to talk about harm and harm absorption. And I want to talk about what are the incentives for different types of governance. So how do, this is my translation of, okay, this is what we, this is what we're thinking about, but from an institutional perspective, how do we do this? And so yeah, I want to come to you here because, um, you know, certainly, you know, in, in, in our world, uh, in, the, in the humanitarian development space, I can definitely say we don't do necessarily do an analysis around the systems of harm and current harm that might result out of any interventions we design, let alone technology interventions. And we might say it from a policy perspective or a philosophical perspective, but when it then comes down to who is deploying that technology and designing that technology, there's a gap. So I want to ask you, uh, sort of, and, and, and I'm opening this up to Andrew and Sabello as well, what types of harms, and by here I want to focus on future harms, must be designed out of this? Because often we are firefighting the problem in front of us today. We're designing to you know, sort, sort the issue we see today and not necessarily thinking about what, what, could, eat, what could happen from this. Um, and, how, and then the second part of this question, which I want to open up to both Andrew and, and Sabello, is how do we incentivize organizations, uh, and actually Andrew, because of your work in designing an ethics system internally for Planet, I'd be curious to hear your point of view. How do we incentivize institutions to absorb more of that harm rather than to kind of not think about anything that goes beyond the institutions uh, normal legal impunity and you know part of it well that we, let's not worry about what's going to happen to the end user here and that's what generally what happens so how do we incentivize a greater absorption of the responsibility of harm towards institutions rather than uh, uh, sort of pushing it off to to communities and end users and minoritized folks uh, but to start with what are the current and future harms that must be designed out of these systems and Anasuya I'd love to hear your thoughts on that Thanks, Arthi. I, I just want to start by acknowledging what Sabello said and in the spirit of self and collective reflection, I would just like all of our 144 participants, how wonderful is that, 
to reflect on the fact um, or reflect on the question, when you hear the word Ubuntu, do you think of a free and open source software or do you think of a South African philosophy of humanity? Just even that, I think, will give us pause and reflection for some of the critical questions you're asking us today, Aarti, in terms of the epistemics, in terms of who we center and who we decenter. And so when you ask the question around harms, I have to start in a different place to answer that question. Because one of the things that happens to us when we are in, in spaces of crisis, as well as in spaces of technology, um, there are a couple of things. One is that, as Andrew mentioned earlier, there's, a, there's an assumption of neutrality. There's an assumption of neutrality from the humanitarian sector, and there's an assumption of neutrality around tech. There are similarities to how problematic that notion of neutrality is in both those cases. But the real problem, I think, is in starting with them as potential solutions to a problem we have not articulated. So if we start by saying, what is the vision of the world that we seek? What is the just, equitable, decolonized, feminist future and futures that we seek? And then reverse engineer to say, how do we get there? The responses to that might be very different than if I start from what are the harms? And the reason for that would be, I think, that in, from that perspective, I think there are two or three things I would say. The first, is that if we were to start by seeking a just, equitable, feminist, decolonized future for the world that is based around well-being and based around not just the centering of humanity, but the centering of the earth, so a biocentric model, because that too is, I think, a deep, deep issue of the humanitarian sector that has not been questioned yet or challenged adequately then it may require the decentering, the stepping back of the very roles and responsibilities that people in the humanitarian sector have taken upon themselves. This is frightening, right? It is deeply frightening. It, it undermines all the systems and processes that have been built. And the question then to ask is whether in the humanitarian sector, whether in the tech sector, are we building systems to justify our own existence and our own uh, time in them, to justify uh, our own living from them, rather than seeking the, seeking the outcome that we want for the worlds that we want. The second piece around that is with the decentering, what, what can you do to think about other forms of accountability and responsibility, exactly as Sabello said, which are also deeply discomforting, but are transformational, like reparation. So for instance, again, to, to take the example of history, a uh, feminist economist recently uh, did this analysis 
that in the 250 years of uh, Britain's colonization of India, $45 trillion moved from India to Britain, which meant that Britain didn't develop India, which is the classic, classic trope. India developed Britain, right? And Wakanda is not a possible Afro future. It is indeed a possible Afro past, right? Based on the histories of, of structural colonization and capitalism. So what happens when you decenter yourself, when you think about your own um, reasons for being in existence and what you do, and what happens when you rethink and redesign those reasons for being as being focused on reparation and justice rather than on um, existing for the sake of existence, right? And I'll stop there. The Wakanda uh, analogy and comment is incredibly powerful, Anasuya, because you 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 are right, and and that's amazing. Um, okay, I I did want to ask about how well, I might I might, but Evandra, I could just ask you to keep your response super quick, um, and then I'll go to Sabello as well. Uh, um, about how do we incentivize organizations and, and how are you thinking about this as you're designing this ethics program, you know, for a technology company in Silicon Valley working on humanitarian issues. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna speak quickly and try to cram. First of all, this, what you've discovered, I, what we hope all 140 of us, 140 something of us have discovered is that we need like four hours for this discussion. This is like the tributaries that open from this that Anasuya and Sibella have opened are just amazing. I just wanna say one thing about them and then I'm gonna pivot to the answer that you, to the question you asked. You know, we, we're building technologies that are built by people who have been steeped in a, a bunch of tacit assumptions that are, that are the foundational structures of the West that involve the relationship between the individual and the whole, the role, the, the, the centrality of consumption to the, to the creation of one's being, the, the, the consumption of symbolic and, and physical material, uh, a relationship bet between humanity and the natural world that is largely extractive, um, a, a, a focus on the interrelationship between beings that is largely focused on transactions and uh, a social order that is uh, uh, predicated on dominance. So the technologies that we're talking about here come from people who have enormous blind spots around the relationship of the individual to the whole, the role of, of the consumption of all things, uh, the, the relationship uh, between humanity and and, and the natural world and, and how, how things happen, how, how, which is largely through this idea of transactions as opposed to relationships. Um, and so in an, in an environment like that, where those, all those relationships are provisional, you must have dominance in order to have longevity because transactions are short and dominance is, the arcs of dominance are, are long. Okay, so many of the technologies that we create, we bring to communities in some spirit of help and you know this this is that that list of 
psychological phenomena and and the kind of tacit biases is how you get people who have built dating caps dating applications for their for their pets and would like to repurpose them for humanitarian uh, applications it's because they 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 see well i built this thing and it does transactions well so now i'm going to take it over here and do transactions well because that's what the world is made of so you asked this question about how do you reverse the story we have a i, I want to say to you that one of the great challenges here, it, it, I, we have an incredibly robust, really, really deep and genuinely, we are genuinely struggling with all of these ethical dilemmas in my organization. And because we feel the dilemmas, we are actually pretty quiet about the work itself. Some of it for practical reasons and some of it because we don't want to do virtue signaling and because we don't want to draw uh, attention to the inevitable mistakes that you know we'll say one thing and then we'll end up with something that's hard to explain and all of that sort of swirling around. So we, I, I, we don't genuinely talk about this enough. So I, I'm happy to share a little bit of it. Really, I, this is among the first times I've ever really talked about this work, but it's a huge part of my daily work. So we root our ethical system uh, and I, I want to just reflect on what Anasu said a, a moment ago, in what we think of as the foundational principle of planetary ethics, which is a universal obligation that we recognize, we think it's universal, to uh, protect the capacity for life to flourish on the earth now and for future generations. That principle, from that principle, we derive a series of actions and a series of subsidiary principles and then we build processes to support the application of those principles to practical decisions like, should we give these tools, which are very powerful, to already powerful people? So one, one thing, for instance, there's a lot of fetishization in, our, in the technology community about making things open. But if you make them blindly open in a society, for instance, in which you have, uh, you have a dominant group with lots of social power, and you often have a much larger group of people with relatively limited social power, and you just throw open the gates, what you do is you take the already positionally advantage and you dramatically accelerate the value that they can extract from these assets. And you might marginally improve the other group, but you've increased the net inequality between them. So like we, we think about these issues of say disproportionate empowerment and the protect and, and the reduction of harm. And, th and the last thing I just wanna say, cause it was in your question, Arathy, is about the reduction of harm. The two things to say are that on the one hand, we want to avoid the obvious ways in which these very powerful tools and technologies might be used to create harm by ensuring that they are both A, we keep them out of actors where we are worried about the use case or about the position of that actor. Uh, B, where we ensure that there's an ecosystem so that you know, journalists and human rights organizations and all the rest of the other actors that might act as a countervailing force also have access to them and have the capacity to use them. And, and a third thing is to have some humility about our ability to assess the capability for harm which is to say that we don't know both all the harms that might be created and also sometimes our assumptions about harm might lead us to reinforce decisions where we are using our position as a small group of Silicon Valley types to make decisions about other people 
and about what they what they might or might not do, which itself reifies those power imbalances. So we have to be really careful about deciding what we decide and what we don't. And then the last thing I'll say is that is that the 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 this it, these issues are uh, not just ones of policy, but they're ones of product, because you have to engineer these affordances into the actual technologies themselves so that among other things, you can actually make decisions about them. Many of these technologies that we put into the humanitarian sector don't have the structures of governance built into them that would allow you to make thoughtful and nuanced decisions about them. They're just sort of like, well, now it's up to you. We've, we've shipped it and it's someone else's problem to make, to make decisions. I'll stop there, but, but it's very hard to talk about global ethics and all of the principles in, in a couple of minutes. So I, oh, it's it, it really it is. And I really appreciate your comment uh, around the humility to even assess the impacts of harm. And I guess that's where, um, you know, in, in, in the research that or what, what we're looking at uh, is around, yeah, you can't do that as, 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 as just one group of homogenous people. Uh, and that's where, you know, would notions of decoloniality, even in that thinking around that might help. I'm going to um, open up to questions uh, from our audiences, and we're going to go five minutes over. So we'll finish at 12.05 um, Eastern time, just to make sure we do some justice. Sabello, we've got a question for you. Sabello highlights the human issue. Uh, does the panel consider the issues being discussed as bound with an inherent speciesism? I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly. An interesting emerging technology that challenges this is human augmentation, whereby the taxonomical exam, um, e.g. genetic composition, social and phenomenological uh, may well blur human non-human distinction. How does this change the current um, anthropocentric starting point on a technological ethic? I think I understand that question, but uh, Sabella, do you want me to repeat it? I think I understand it too, and I apologize in advance when I miss some of the uh, details there. But it, it seems like to sort of hint at that maybe we have these inherent biological tendencies to, to create hierarchy, which then leads to um, oppressive systems. Um, if that's the case, I, I'm, I'm not going to argue against that. I would just say that it's why we develop ethical systems to try to help us to better understand maybe the natural stance is for, you know, might is right to use our power naturally, but uh, we have to overcome that and find the best system of organization that um, ensures that we all have a fair chance at life and we all have enough adequate protections to live a meaningful and, and, and a, a, a valuable life. Thank you, Sabello. Um, Andrew and Anasuya, did either of you want to um, take that as well? Anasuya? I'll add, I'll add that the principle that I just described, which is to have solidarity with the community of life. It's not, you know, the, the, the first principle of planetary ethics is not to ensure the flourishing of human life. It's to ensure the flourishing of the capacity of the planet to, to endure um, and to support the flourishing of all life. And, and the, the absence of the distinction there, the anthropogenic distinction is, uh, is deeply intentional. Um, we use these tools as much to on issues of protecting the larger community of life as we do within the human um, community, the, within the human family. Great. The sorry. one thing I can add, sorry, I think the one thing I'll add, um, which might bring this home literally, 
is that in many of the indigenous communities that I uh, uh, work with, um, there is no word for nature in their languages yeah. because there is no separation of the human from what we in the Western world or what the Western world understands as nature because of the significant interconnectedness. And that interconnectedness in a sense is actually at the root, I think, of many of the ways that we can reimagine and redesign our current lives as well as our future lives. Thank you. Uh, next question, uh, I think I'm gonna post this to Anasuya, uh, but you know, certainly it's Sabella Wendra if you have ideas here too. Uh, could the speakers mention examples of platforms or technologies that are managing better power, privilege, and that go beyond Western-centric approaches? I mean, I want to uh, say whose knowledge is definitely one of those platforms, um, but Anasuya, any other examples that you can think of as well? And maybe a little bit about what whose knowledge does as well, would be great. Sure. Um, Whose Knowledge is a global multilingual campaign. I've, I've started questioning the term global, so let me just say translocal with a global connective tissue. Um, a campaign that looks to center the knowledges of marginalized communities uh, online. And as we, uh, as I said before, we call ourselves the minoritized majority to remind the world that we are the majority of the world, whether that is as women, whether that is as black and brown folks, whether that is as indigenous and queer folks, whether that is as all of us from the global south. Um, I think the key uh, elements and design pr principles of platforms that um, are trying to be decolonized in our own selves, though I will admit that uh, even as someone who embodies multiple systems of knowledge, I have to watch my own colonized mind because it is such, such a slippery slope. It is so internalized. But uh, some of the key elements are the, these. One is that the design and leadership of the communities that we serve and the communities we come from are centered in the way that we think about how that platform or space, digital space functions and who it functions for. So we are not designing it for a funder. We are not designing it for a global south, global north uh, viewer. We are thinking about our communities. That is where multilinguality, for instance, is critical, even though it's still such a difficult thing for us to achieve. So that's an example of it. The other two things that I will uh, say that I think is, is, is part of this as a design principle, but is part of the humanitarian design principle. One of the things we try and avoid is the recency problem. Because there's so much of the digital that is recent, right? Digital content is so much more easily about the recent. We can forget history. And that is part of what Silicon Valley does. It decontextualizes, it dehistoricizes, right? Um, and so do our governments of oppression. All systems of oppression dehistoricize and decontextualize. And so for us, we try and push against our own tendencies for recency and look to archive uh, history of different kinds um, and uh, with different communities. The other thing is to push against the danger of proximity. And that too is a really key 
crisis of the humanitarian sector and of the technological sector. We care for those who are closest to us. Mm -hmm. Those who are furthest from us, we couldn't give a damn about even if we pretend we do. Mm. So Twitter can ban uh, President Trump because the optics of banning President Trump in the States is significant, but will take down posts of Narendra Modi in India, where Facebook will, um, will hide, resign Modi campaigns. Essentially over the last two weeks, Facebook um, took down posts on Instagram and on Facebook, including the hashtag resign Modi. It's possibly the first time that Facebook has actually taken down calls for the resignation of a democratically elected leader anywhere in the world. But Facebook doesn't care about Modi, right? Because they don't care about India other than it is the largest market for Facebook. The optics of it are too far away to care for Silicon Valley, unlike the optics of the American public. So part of our really important um, push is to challenge recency and proximity. And the most important thing that we can do and that we try and do is to center the imaginations of our communities because it, safety and security is a low bar and it's terrifying that we still have to struggle for that low bar. I want an internet of joy for my peoples. How and when do I get that? How and when do I get a world of joy for my peoples? Mm. If those who are privileged are allowed to have joy, why should not we? I'm pausing because yeah. I think joy is, how do we design for joy? How do we design for spaces that we all flourish? Um, and if one, some communities can design for joy, why is that extra? You know, wh why do we just design for people to survive in other spaces? Uh, and I know, you know, with all of you, I, we've had very lots of conversations about this. There's loads of questions that we can't get to. I'm so sorry uh, to the amazing attendees. Um, I see this as a start of a conversation for all of us. Um, the, the work that I'm doing with Berkman um, isn't, I don't believe and I don't want this, this approach, this framework to ever be static. It has to be emergent because the complexities we are facing are emergent. So these conversations, though, um, I'm informed so much and learned so much, you know, Sabelo, Anasuya, Andrew, uh, you're all dear, dear friends. And I learned so much from you, you've informed my thinking and all our, all our collective thinking here today. Um, we are five minutes over, so I am going to close us, but I want to close us with Anasuya's point. Let us design for joy, how, and, 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 and as opposed to just thinking about equity and justice, you know, let's think about how can joy be more easy, be accessible to everybody, not just to survive. Um, any last thoughts or comments from Sabelo, Anasuya, Andrew before, before we say goodbye? Just a word of thanks to all three of you. Um, as ever, all these interactions have been uh, amazing. You've just been amazing teachers for the last hour. So thank you very much. Thank you all uh, for involving me in this conversation. It's great to be in community with you all and to the audience as well.
And everybody, thank you so much for joining us, for taking one hour out of your Fridays uh, to, to be with us today. This is the start of many, many more conversations. Uh, this isn't just about, um, you know, we often throw the words of diversity, uh, decolonization to mean diversity and inclusion. It's not, it's, it's, it's the centering, it's decentering. The foresight isn't a northern, cannot just be a northern hegemonic process. Decoloniality and it has to be infused through that. Governance doesn't sit by itself. All of this influences how we think. The complexities of our time require emergence. It requires radical hope and radical joy. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. Uh, I am in gratitude. I am uh, and, and, and in so much of your graceful teachings today. Thank you for joining us, everybody. And, and please stay in touch and get, get in contact with all of us uh, if you want to learn more and be part of this journey. Thank you. Thank you.